I hold the Panula Chair in Christian Culture here at the Catholic Information Center, and tonight is my very first in real life appearance here, and I couldn't be more delighted about that or more delighted for this occasion, which is celebrating and learning about the latest book by our friend Austin Roos called Under Siege, No Finer Time to Be a Faithful Catholic. Austin Roos is the longtime president of CFAM, the Center of Family and Human Rights, a New York and Washington DC-based research institute that has played a central role in blocking a global right to abortion at the United Nations. <clears throat> Austin is a bi-weekly columnist at Crisis Magazine, a founding columnist at The Catholic Thing, co-founder of the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast, and a member of, uh, uh, sorry, and a Knight of Malta, a Knight of the Holy Sepulchre, and a member of the Sons of the American Revolution. He is the author of three previous books. He lives in Northern Virginia with his wife, Kathy, who's with us tonight, and their daughters, Lucy and Gigi. <coughs> so that is the official introduction to Austin Roos. Now let me offer one that's a little more unplugged. Seven years ago, at exactly this time of year, Professor Robert George of Princeton gave a speech to the 10th annual National Catholic Prayer Breakfast. It took many listeners by surprise. Its theme in his opening words was that, quote, the days of socially acceptable Christianity are over. The days of comfortable Christianity are past. There are exceptions, of course, as Professor George also noted. He said, quote, a tame Christian a Christian who is ashamed of the gospel or who is willing to act publicly as if he or she were ashamed is still socially acceptable. But a Christian who makes it clear that he or she is not ashamed must be prepared for many risks and sacrifices." Unquote. Seven years later, those words no longer sound as shocking as they did. During those seven years, a series of events leading to today's cancel culture made plenty of believers aware of the new threats to religious liberty or of the reasons why some now speak of a Benedict option and of other sea changes suggesting that American Christians are now, as Archbishop Chaput put it, strangers in a strange land. But even before the awakening, bold friend was already delivering spirited, unafraid witness to the current age wherever he could, in the pages of magazines like Crisis and The Catholic Thing, and above all, in the modern Ephesus known as the United Nations. That bold friend is Austin Roos. Now, Austin and Kathy are longstanding personal pals of ours, and my inbox in particular is an embarrassing treasure trove of mitzvahs by both of them stretching back over many years. They've introduced me to many people of note, including in the church. They've helped with my research. They've sent speaking opportunities my way. And in an episode that he has probably forgotten, Austin once spent the better part of a morning talking me off a figurative ledge 
when one particular essay that I had written brought serious negative attention from the so-called adult, so-called film, so-called industry. Writer Norman Podhoretz once coined the phrase foul weather friend to describe Norman Mailer, who was only there when the chips were down. <laughs> but I'm here to report that Austin Roos is an all-weather friend. He is right there in good times, in wretched times, and in times when the eyes of the world are frowning down so fiercely that you wonder why you ever invited such calumny. But Austin never wonders. His eyes are on the eternal prize. Austin brings to his friendship with the truth the same unbidden loyalty and gra that graces his friendships with mere mortals. Austin has enemies for the only reason one should ever have enemies, because he stands fearlessly and unapologetically on the right side of Catholic teaching, and he does not care who objects. He's been taking risks and making sacrifices on behalf of Christianity for years, years during which many of our fellow believers cut corners and made deals and hoped that the angel of social death would pass over them. Those kinds of Christians especially have much to learn from Austin. And if you know any, you must make them a gift of his new book because it might just shock some people into orthodoxy. As many people might not know, the pre-Catholic Austin was one of the cool kids, <clears throat> hanging around Rolling Stone magazine and other trendy haunts, enjoying expense accounts, sharing drinks in all the toniest places, reveling in New York City and other hot spots as only the young and unfettered can. But then he found the coolest place of all, and he's been leading people to it with every iota of his being ever since. Austin <clears throat> is underestimated by his friends and adversaries alike. Well, we shall try to give this joyous, big-hearted leader of others just a little of his due tonight. Before he takes the floor, I want to mention one more fact that many people don't seem to know or don't give credit for. That fact impressed itself on this reader the first time I happened across one of Austin's columns. He is a superb writer. His prose is luminous. <clears throat> it has the clarity and purpose that more ambivalent stylists can only envy. Now Austin has put this and his other prodigious gifts at the feet of the capital C cause, and all of us should applaud him for it. Buy his book tonight, think of buying it for a friend tomorrow, and hope that its jubilant message of redemption sails out for the bobbing souls of our turbulent world to see. Friend Austin, thank you for writing this, and the stage is now all yours. I kind of wish I had all of that money that I spent in New York City back. Um, thank you for that. Mary is an old, old friend and uh, a prodigious liar. Um, uh, and I'm really moved by what you said. You know, I do absolutely 100% believe in standing by uh, our friends who are under attack. Um, and I, I have really tried to do that for the longest time, and it's gotten me into trouble. Um, but I don't mind. 
I don't mind at all. Uh, for those of you who are joining online, you should understand that this is very, for COVID days, it's a packed house. <laughs> uh, this Downtown Washington, D.C. is kind of a ghost town. Uh, and the CIC is right here in the middle of it. You know, I, I, am, a, I am a convert to the faith and uh, also a revert. Um, now, how does that happen? Uh, well, it's because um, I, I, my joke is that I wanted to be in the house, but I wasn't entirely ready to clean up my room. Um, and so I lived a little bit away from the church from 1985 to 1993. And during all that time, um, God put on me this desire to, and you'll laugh, uh, to be a, a Trappist. Um, and so I spent, I actually applied to the Trappist and I uh, spent long retreats at the Trappists. Um, uh, and all I did at the Trappist was bounce off the walls and think about girls. Um, now I understand that uh, this is not uncommon even among religious congregations, um, but it was very clear that the Trappists weren't for me. And on my last retreat, um, I, uh, left early, rented a car at the Louisville airport. I was going to the Abbey of Gethsemane. And I drove not home to New York City, but here to Washington, D.C., because I had it in my mind that I was going to find my wife here. And I mean literally here at the CIC, because I used to go to daily mass here way back in the day. And uh, it was always, there were always long lines of very eligible women uh, receiving communion. So I thought that I would come back here and find my wife. But I didn't find my wife at the CIC. I met her, Kathy, uh, a couple of blocks away at a pro-life meeting. But all those years I have been going to the CIC and I have found remarkable sucker for my faith here. Uh, you all may remember uh, Father C. John McCloskey. Pray for him, he needs our prayers right now. Um, and then Father Bill Stetson and then Father Arnie Panula. Um, and my daughters to this day go to confession with Father Charles at Oakcrest, a couple of miles uh, up the road. So this is a, just a remarkable place. Um, so I'm grateful to uh, the CIC for hosting, I think this is my third book event. Um, and I, so I'm very, very grateful. Um, so here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about no finer time to be a faithful Catholic. Everybody knows there's a war going on in this country, a war on the church, a war on religious believers, a war for souls, our individual souls, and the soul of our country. Our forefathers, mine among them, fought to guarantee a place where all religions were welcome. They fought so that all were free to worship in their own way, and all were free to live their faith, both privately and in the public square. This fact of radical equality did not come from the state, but existed prior to the state. It is a right that comes from God that is supposed to be protected by the state. All of us in this room and listening online grew up believing we lived in a pluralistic society where Catholic, Protestant, Jew, believer, non-believer stood equal before each other and equal before the state. It has not always been easy for that proposition. Nonetheless, this is what we believed and this is what we practiced. Recent events have shown that this notion is practically quaint. Not content with banning prayer in school, not content with chasing believers off of public land, Religious believers are now hounded by the state in their personal and professional lives. Religious believers are hounded out of jobs, hounded out of public ministries, and even religious apostolates for not agreeing with the state. If the state gets its way, religious believers will be fined by the state. 
We may no longer live in a pluralistic society because now it seems we live under an official state religion. This official religion does not allow pluralistic disagreement where each of us is free to go our own way. This official state religion pushes upon us a new God, a jealous God, an angry God who insists that we take our, ch that our children take their pills, read and recite their sexual propaganda, and that we should joyfully accept all of their new dogmas and reach into our pockets and pay for it. Now, you may think in what I'm saying here and also in the book that my message is bleak, that we should despair, perhaps retreat behind gated faith communities um, and hold on desperately to the few morsels of religious practice that are left to us, that all that is left to us is message today or in the book. In fact, I say this is the time for rejoicing, as, rejo as joyous a time as any time in the life of the church. I say how blessed are we to be here right now when everything seems so lost. How blessed are we to be called by him to defend his creation right here. Catholics who have ever Let's look briefly at the battle today. The first part of the book is, is a very dark look, and I'm just going to take a little glimpse of it right here. Um, there's, a, there's a quote that I love from T.S. Eliot. I am Lazarus, come from the dead, come back to tell you all. I shall tell you all. I look at things that most people don't want to look at, and then I come and tell you guys. So let's look at the battle today. I examine these issues in much greater detail in the book but we'll take a glimpse. Note that all of these issues I will cite uh, are pointed directly at two institutions our opponents on the left want to destroy, the church and the family. Abortion still takes 1.2 million children uh, a year. Pornography brings in $10 billion a year and on the way, along the way destroys souls and families and children. Um, I write in the book about a company called MindGeek. I suspect that nobody here has ever heard of MindGeek unless I told you. MindGeek are the guys that invented online pornography in a way that you can stream it on your iPhone. The children can stream it on their iPhone. Um, three guys from Canada who were inspired by YouTube and decided to give us free pornography, which is what MindGeek does. MindGeek's family of websites now has more traffic than Facebook, more traffic than Amazon. Um, and these are the guys that did it. And I talk about it in much greater detail in, in the book about who these guys are and what they have done. 70% of black children are born into homes without fathers. 50% of white children are born into families without fathers. Mary has written powerfully about the effects these, uh, the effect these facts have had upon modern day politics. I highly recommend her latest book, uh, Primal Scream. Divorce destroys upwards of half of the marriages formed in the United States, as uh, Mary's wonderful, talented husband, Nick Eberstadt, has written. Um, significant portions of the world's young women have decided that they're never going to get married. Um, church. Uh, that we no longer live in pluralism. That starting uh, with the Supreme Court decision on, um, on school prayer in 1962, um, and then proceeding from there. See, in 1962 in the school prayer decision, they not only um, outlawed school prayer, and it was an anodyne prayer, you know, God Almighty, please bring blessings upon this land, our teachers and our parents. And it was written by a committee 
of Protestant ministers, Catholic priests, and, and, and Jewish rabbis. Thirteen judges upheld school prayer before it got to the Supreme Court. Then the Supreme Court overturned it. The key point about the school prayer decisions was less about school prayer and the fact that the Supreme Court determined in that case that the object and purpose of government has to be secular. There was a long-term debate in this country uh, between what some call the providentialists and, and the other side being the secularists. And the debate is, who are we as a people? And what role does religion play in the public square? The Supreme Court put a thumb on the scale in 1962 and determined that, that the object and purpose of government has to be secular and therefore without God. And following from that is uh, Griswold and Eisenstadt on contraception. Following from that was the Fanny Hill decision, which opened the doors to uh, 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 obscenity. Following that, of course, was, uh, was Roe v. Wade, then the sodomy decisions, and then Obergefell. And all of this cascades down from the Supreme Court through the Department of Justice, Department of Education, all the way down to the local grade school, a mile from where I live, where little children are taught this dogma that sex is assigned at birth and that boys can become girls. This is a new faith. This is a new established church, and I argue that. Moving on. Um, Catholic charities in both Massachusetts and Illinois were forced out of the adoption business because of uh, the, objection to hand, uh, the Catholic objection to hand, handing children photographer to the bakers in, in Colorado and they're still going after the bakers in Colorado um, now on transgender grounds quite simply there is and it's not just a very President Obama, and it is being revived under President Biden. Let me give you a few cases. Many people don't know how long ago this was. Belmont College are either state action, one of the 50 states, or federal action against a single person or a single institution. But something exponentially different happened during the Obama administration, something that upends our basic understanding of religious liberty, but also something that upends our understanding of the state and its relationship to civil society, which is us. It is now largely forgotten that under Obama, the federal government determined that it alone had the power to decide what is a religious institution. Consider that. The federal government took upon itself to determine what was a religious institution and a religious activity. Moreover, those who oppose these governmentally approved definitions and activities face severe fines, sometimes running into the millions of dollars. As is, as is well known, the federal government ordered all employers who provide health insurance and all health insurance plans to provide coverage for free contraceptives and drugs that kill unborn babies. The political leftists allowed for religious exemptions, which is all well and good, 
But then the federal government alone decided that it had the power to determine what qualified as a religious institution. Their definition includes only actual ch <coughs> excuse me, churches or those non-church institutions that hire only their co-religionists and only minister to their own co-religionists. What this means in plain language is that a hospital that is managed, <coughs> that is administered by the Catholic Church that hires patients considered a religious institution by the federal government. Our friend Professor Carter Sneed of Notre Dame has said, said at the time, this is practice. Notice, and this is him, notice how private this conception is. It is limited to sectarian activities that involve only co-religionists. There is no space in it for living the fully integrated lives with faith permeating every aspect of human activity. Sneed went on. But being and acting in the world as a witness and servant to others, all others, regardless of their beliefs, circumstances, or station in life, is an indispensable aspect of many faiths. He quoted William Cardinal Keeler, who once said, and I love this, Catholics don't educate poor students in the inner city of Baltimore because they are Catholic. We educate them because what is Catholic and what is not. It is really none of their business. It says so in the Constitution, think of the Establishment Clause um, and, 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 and the Freedom of Religion Clause. So it is clear who and what is the real target here. Writer William Gavin said that the radical left in every country which has, where it has gained power ever since the French Revolution has wanted to dismantle, destroy, marginalize, make impotent the Roman Catholic Church. And no make, no make no mistake, most, if not all, of this deadly aggression is aimed at Holy Mother Church. The church is the only institution that has stood solidly foursquare against the agenda of the sexual left. The church has never wavered, not even once on abortion. The church has never wavered, not even once on marriage in the family. The church, while not seeking to impose this on any man, has provided a prophetic witness to the dangers inherent in contraception. <coughs> And the church is the world's leading leader in proclaiming uh, and defending freedom of religion. So you see, we fight for the soul of our country. We fight also for the body of Christ. Arrayed against us are the great powers of our time. And this is kind of cool. The federal government and all its terrible might. The major news media that will spend thousands of hours and millions of dollars to convince everyone that uh, the church is merely against sexual pleasure. Arrayed against us are rich men and rich women, rich foundations, the entertainment industry, and powerful non-governmental organizations. There are many horrific challenges in the current crisis. We are relatively few in number, and our opponents are vast and rich and powerful. But there is also good news too, and this is a big. This is this is what the this is what the uh, subtitle is about. We are under siege, and we've got them right where we want them. You know, uh, there's never been a finer time to be a faithful Catholic. Um, our faith promises that God can bring good out of any evil. And so we rightly ask, what possible good can God bring out of the long-standing attacks on the unborn child and the family and marriage? What possible good can God bring out of the current governmentally initiated attacks on freedom of religion? Well, for one, the great coming together of his children. 
What we have seen in the past quarter century is something I don't believe we've seen since the great rupture of Christendom, the great splitting of Christian faithful during the Protestant Reformation. If God could feel pain, the pain of that split may be the greatest of all because he wants all of his children to be one. And what have we seen over the past quarter century is the great coming together of his Christian children. Catholics and evangelicals are largely putting aside their theological and ecclesiological differences in ways that we have never seen. We are putting together our differences and banding together to fight back against the new state religion, against the new state God. We are working together to protect the unborn child, to protect marriage and family, and indeed to protect the right each of us has to practice our faith in our own way. In my own pro-life and pro-family work at the UN, I work extremely closely, not just with evangelicals and other faiths too, Muslims, Mormons, because we see a greater danger to ourselves than we see coming from each other. We see a war against God's creation and all of God's children must band together to protect it. What we all have in common, I will point out, is that we are all strong believers. I find that I have more in common with a hard-nosed Calvinist than I do with a dissenting Catholic. <laughs> I am proud to work with those who believe I am not only theologically wrong, but damnably wrong, and I would have it no other way. I can count on a strong believer, even one who believes differently than I do. Make no mistake that God wants abortion to end. He wants the slaughter of innocence to end. He wants marriage restored in the way that he made it. He wants all of us to be able to discover him and proclaim him free from the interference and coercion by the state. But what he wants even more than all of these things is for his children to be one and eventually with him in heaven. This is not a call to indifferentism. I am a faithful Catholic and believe the church is not just the one true church, but in the words of comedian Lenny Bruce, the only the church. I am not afraid to say that to my brothers from other faiths in this fight. In fact, I once told a room full of senior Muslim diplomats at the UN that God wants all of them to become Catholic. They sat there and they grinned ear to ear. They believe in strong faith too. So my call is not to put aside on common projects is friendships grow, love grows, and I will also point out that it results in very strong conversions from our evangelical brothers and sisters because they see Holy Mother Church in the Magisterium rock solid and never changing. What we see also in this grand alliance of Catholics and evangelicals is something quite interesting. We see evangelicals coming to understand our natural law philosophy. No longer do evangelicals rely exclusively on scripture to make their case. They are becoming more conversant and articulate in the unique Catholic way of philosophy and public argumentation. But we're also uh, seeing that Catholics are becoming more courageous in expressing our faith in overtly religious terms. Uh, we are more courageous in citing scripture and in publicly proclaiming our faith. One of the great blessings of this land is that we have <coughs> remained as religious as we are we look at Europe and we see a largely dying faith. There's pockets here and there. Even taking into account our current problems in this country, here there is a more robust faith. I believe we as Catholics owe a great debt of gratitude to our evangelical brothers and sisters for proclaiming the faith bravely in the public square, on television, and on the street corner. 
in the late 80s when I was converting and it began in college and proceeded here in Washington, D.C. I used to watch, I used to have my lunch in Farragut Square and I used to watch uh, one of these evangelical preachers who would stand there and preach the gospel and take on all comers and he was one of my inspirations to join the church. I don't think he intended for me to join the Catholic Church, but, uh, but anyway, that's what happened. The other quite amazing thing that has happened in the past few years is the great awakening of our Catholic bishops. And I ask you to follow me on this argument for a moment. Follow this. When John Kerry, a dissenting Catholic, ran for president, I asked papal biographer George Weigel how many bishops could be counted on to publicly criticize John Kerry and his dissents from the faith. And Weigel said 35, he was right on the money. A few years passed and President Obama was invited to speak at Notre Dame and to receive an honorary degree. Those 35 bishops who stood up and complained had grown to 80. I think it was something of a watershed at the time. And then came the great attack on our religious freedom and an issue in this case that touches upon the great third rail of Catholic teaching, which is contraception the Obamacare decision. And guess what? Every single bishop who leads a diocese in the United States condemned it, and then some. More than 200 bishops in all condemned the contraceptive mandate. This is unprecedented in, in our times. Many vowed to go to jail uh, rather than comply. I kind of wish a few of them had gone to jail. Uh, I, I, I made this remark. I, I also think I, I wish the Little Sisters of the Poor would go to jail. I said this in a talk in, uh, in Lincoln, Nebraska many years ago, and don't you know, afterwards, up comes a bunch of Little Sisters of the Poor, and uh, they said they appreciate the prison system. Um, <laughs> as William Gavin writes, who, after all, who would have believed the Catholic bishops, old celibate men, their authority weakened by the manner media, not listen church teaching on contraception. Who would imagine these people in the United States? And they did. It was not supposed to be this way. The bishops were supposed to be cowed into silence, hoping that one day their moral authority would be restored, and it hasn't turned out that way. I'm sure we wish that they would be more vocal on a whole host of issues, but they haven't caved on the things that we care about the most. These and other issues in society and the church cause many of us to suffer from what I consider to be distractions, um, what I, certain dispositions of personality that people, that people internalize and therefore avoid what they're supposed to be doing these days. One of them is nostalgia. Some may long to have lived in another time in the world and under the our times. They're not our times. I say this. Now is the time to be a faithful Catholic. There never was a finer time. It is the time that God called us to. He called us on danger. Looking at all the troubles around us, looking at all the powers arrayed against us, looking at our small numbers, one is tempted to emulate Lot's wife, <coughs> who stared so intently at the evil around her that she was frozen, unable to move, turned to salt, we may be so tempted to look intently at these vast problems of our world and of our church and decide to pull the covers over our heads 
not to get out of bed except at work, to shop, to watch TV, play video games, play golf. I look at all of this and I say, never has there been a finer time to be a faithful Catholic. <coughs> Why? Because all of us are so very needed. We cannot spare even a single one of us. And therefore, what a blessing it is for us to be here now. It is not in spite of the manifold and manifest problems of society and the church that makes this the final, finest time to be a faithful Catholic, but precisely because of them. God the Father called us here now when he knew the societal collapse would come. He John Newhouse. defensive marriage and on women in sports. There is so much to be done and there are so few of us. But our models for this are all around us because we have also lived in a time of great saints and spiritual giants. There is no need to long for previous times when saints walk the globe. We live there now. An image flashed across the internet a few days ago, an old man in orange and a long knife in the time of Mother Teresa, Jose Maria Escriva, Gianna Mola. We have lived in the time of Venerable Montserrat Grasas, a teenager who gave all for Christ. We have lived in the time of Blessed Pierre Giorgio Frassati. We have lived in the time of those I call the littlest suffering souls. I wrote a book about them, three children who suffered greatly, died young, and brought many people to the faith. We lived when they lived. We lived in the time of John Paul the Great. We have lived among great saints. And we have lived in They are bristling with growth. We see new orthodox and fully habited religious congregations, the Sisters of Light, the Nashville Dominicans, the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal, the Fraternity of St. Peter, the Institute of Christ the King Sovereign Priest, our friends from TFP, thank you for being here. Uh, we love you guys. We see new and vibrant Catholic colleges, high schools, and even grade schools. We see new Catholic newspapers and magazines and websites sprouting like mushrooms. We see Catholic and Christian publishing houses like Ignatius, Tan, Sophia, St. Benedict, Angelico, to name just a few. When I was converting in the late 80s, I didn't know what to read, and none of my Catholic friends could tell me what to read because they were so poorly catechized, and I didn't know where to go. I discovered Ignatius Press, 
thank God for Father Fascio and what they have done. But now there's so much more. There's a, a, an abundance of Catholic publishing. And if we look at the past few years in the church, I think we can see things that previous ages would look at with envy. And certainly our descendants will look back with envy. Indeed, seen all together and with the right eyes, these past few years are enough to take the breath away of faithful Catholics. I suggest that we have not seen anything like what has happened in these past few years. What I will describe is a world obsessed with the Catholic Church, obsessed with an institution like no other. The world, quite simply, cannot get enough of us. I will begin <coughs> with the moment of great humiliation, that horrible time in 2002, the time that Father Newhouse called suffering related to sexually aberrant priests. They use it against us still. But wasn't it good to get it out in the open? Nonetheless, I, I don't want to dwell on that. We must know that Satan specifically targeted the church for this humiliation. He sent wicked men to invade our priesthood because he knows his great enemy is Holy Mother Church. And though we know other societal institutions experience the same thing, we know the church is highlighted because she is Satan's great enemy. But we also know that young men would rush in to defend their mother, the church. It, indeed, in 2002, Father Groeschel told me that young men, good solid young men, would answer that call, and we know that they are, and that we know that they continue to do so. There's an image from a few years ago in Washington, D.C. There was a high-rise fire and down near the Marine barracks, you know, the headquarters of the Marines, and a home for the elderly located near there <coughs> was on fire, and there was this photograph of three, <coughs> somebody, you know what, it's pollen season. And there was an image of three young Marines running full tilt into that building. It was an amazing photograph. <coughs> they did not hesitate. They sprinted toward the danger. And this is the image we have of young men answering the call of the priesthood at, <coughs> at that time and still. Young men will always respond to the distress call of their mother. But even then, in 2002, <coughs> I'm like Hillary Clinton up here. In the very shadow of that scandal, the Holy Spirit was working. <coughs> For within a year of those awful events of the Long Lent, what did we see? Do you remember? Do you remember? We saw the release of Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. And I ask you, don't forget what an event that movie was. Has it already faded from memory? I was in a New York hotel room on that and was talking about it. Every single talking head and newsman was talking about not just the movie, but the of the cross. and even went to prison for it. But that's not all, for within only a few months of that powerful movie came the most unlikely event, the presidential election, of where John Kerry ran. For the highest and even 
But more than that, we witnessed a national debate about what? The proper reception of the Holy Eucharist. Do you remember that? I urge you not to forget it. The Holy Eucharist was at the center of our national debate. No matter where one stood on pro-choice politicians taking communion, the debate was edifying because it brought the meaning of the Eucharist before a national and even a global audience. And I don't think we've ever seen anything quite like that before. But then almost before we could catch our breath, what did we see? We saw, I'm telling you, this was right after that. We saw the final suffering and death of our beloved John Paul the Great. Consider that all of these events were compressed into a few years. Do you remember when the whole world under, gathered under his window at the Gamelli Hospital, and then the whole world followed him back in the ambulance to St. Peter's Square, and then the whole world waited with him under his window prayerfully as he showed us how to suffer and then how to die? We watched silently by television and radio all over the world for the final word. I was on retreat in rural Virginia, and we were gathered around my car with the doors open, listening to the radio for the final word. And when the time came, people of all faiths raised their voices in praise <coughs> and prayer for this good and, and great man. This filed through St. Peter's Square to view his body. Hundreds of thousands dropped whatever they were doing and went to Rome with no place to sleep and no plan except to thank our Holy Father. <coughs> Hundreds of millions watched this remarkable event on television. The whole world watched. And then, the whole world stayed around to see who the new, next pope would be. Part of the legacy of John Paul the Great was that he was not just the pope of our church, but he was the pope of the world. And did any of you notice that even our evangelical friends, friends felt they had a stake in who the new pope would be? And when the white smoke rose and the bells rang, a few hundred thousand ran to the square and hundreds of millions ran to their television sets when it was announced, Habibus Papam, we have a pope. And the world, most of the world anyway, celebrated together. And within a few years of that blessed event, we had a national debate over healthcare, and what did we see? We saw the church's teaching on abortion in the very middle of that debate. We saw the church stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the powers of the earth and demand that abortion not be a part of that bill. The entire bill was held up because of these concerns of the church. And almost before we knew it, Benedict resigned, and the news shook not just our Catholic world, but the world over. And this was followed by the election of a new pope, whose every utterance on a plane lands on the front page of every newspaper around the globe. I was at the meeting of uh, the, the, the Synod on the Family now several years ago, which, you know, these, these, these events are generally very boring. And this one was covered on the front page of every newspaper in the world because they thought the Catholic Church would change its teaching on homosexuality. And then there was a global debate about a rather long and not terribly exciting papal document. The whole world watches us. The world simply cannot get enough of us. And now we see a renewed battle that once more pits sexually aberrant priests who have come to poison our church and sorry to say, cowardly, and even some complicit bishops, and we see the world licking its chops, hungrily waiting to suck the bones <coughs> of Holy Mother Church. As awful as this is, do you see what's going on? The world would not stand and gaze so intently on the victories and defeats, and especially the humiliations of any other institution except that which was divinely created. And so I ask you, in the history of the world, have we ever seen a time like this 
when the whole world watched so intently and for so long, Holy Mother Church. We are living through one of the most remarkable epochs that the church has ever seen, and I implore you not to miss it. Finally, consider that he sent us here right now. At a time that, at the time that they were called, the apostles weren't the best of their age, and you know, neither are we. You know, I don't know if anybody here went to Harvard, and none of us worked for Google, but God knew that, and he sent us here right now anyway to defend his church from within and without. My little joke is that he, he sent the likes of us so he could get all the credit, and I'm fine with that. <coughs> he sent us here to remake society over against the onslaught of the new Google barbarians, and so we must remember who we are and be comforted. Arnold Toynbee wrote many years ago that we had come to the very end of the spiritual capital built up through what was known as Christendom. He said we awaited an age yet to be born. John Paul the Great said this new century would be a great Christian century, a great springtime of the faith, hinting at glorious seasons to come. And this is the new age waiting to be born. Now, none of us will live long. Recall how I began this talk about how some in our times suffer from nostalgia for better times, simpler times, perhaps more successful times in the church. But I say this is what will happen. When Catholics in future ages look back upon this age, they will look back with great envy. We need not be envious for times past in the church, for our descendants will long to have been here with us right here and right now in these difficult times. In these small rooms, when troubles close in all around us, when there were so few of us to fight back, times of great danger and great fermentations of the faith, times of great saints and spiritual giants, times where each faithful Catholic, each one of us is so badly needed, I say there is no finer time to be a faithful Catholic than right now. we won't have time for audience questions um, and I'm I sure ate up all the time everyone was as mesmerized as I well I helped you eat up the time. <laughs> and also anyone longing for an earlier age listening to Austin cough and me cough can just pretend that you're right back <laughs> in the middle ages I hope you feel at home I wanted to tell a quick story that uh, was brought to mind by what you were saying uh, and it's about what happened uh, after a talk I gave once on a campus and a young woman came up and she really wanted to tell me her story. And she said she had converted to the Catholic Church from a secular background. And I said, well, what, what did it? Was it art? Was it theology? Was it the Bible? Was it, you know, I named all the treasures of the patrimony of the church. And she said, no, it was none of those things. She said, when I was in high school, my best friend was from a big Catholic family. And I found myself more and more unable to stay away from her house. And I didn't know what it was. All I knew was that I wanted what they had. And that to me is consonant with your message because the family that she wanted to emulate and join was of course created out of fidelity to church teaching. And that's just one small example of what so many people are missing in a world where they haven't seen that up close. So our witnesses, as well as our martyrs, will be important. Yeah. Good, I love that story. 
And I wanted to ask also, did you write the book with any particular audience in mind? Are you writing it to buck up fellow <clears throat> Catholics? Are you writing it to challenge dissenting Catholics? Are you writing it for people outside the church? Is it all of the above? You know, um, my audience, I think, has always been the choir. You know, my view is that, uh, I, you know, thoughtful people like you um, can uh, convince people who may be against us, but I consider myself a little bit of a roughneck. I wrote a column about this for, for Crisis Magazine called The Thoughtfuls and the Roughnecks, and you're a thoughtful and I'm a roughneck. Um, so uh, what I seek to do is to get the choir to stand up, because if we could get the choir to act, you know, my lovely wife, you know, went down to the Fairfax County School Board to fight the transgender policy, and they could never get, you know, about 10 or 20 people out of one of the largest school districts in the, in, in the country. So, and there was a meeting where a priest went. Um, with So my work is to get the uh, to get the uh, choir to, to to stand up and do something. Um, yeah. If I might ask a question, because you and Kathy are uh, enthusiasm um, for the future when it comes to say the classical academies, when it comes to vibrant Catholic schools, all of these organizations on campus that didn't exist when you and I were oh, in college. Focus, yeah focused mystic circles, etc. Uh, what's going to happen in a world where everyone who loves the church, wants to bring up their children in the church, goes to those institutions, and there's no one left in the public school world to defend against this new religion, as you correctly put it, that's, yeah. that's grounded in orthodoxy about the sexual revolution. What, as Catholics, should we be doing about those left behind kids? Boy, that is a really good question. I, I almost think that it's it's lifeboat time. I mean, I don't I don't uh, preach uh, the Benedict Option. That in the early days of writing about the Benedict Option, Rod literally was saying we should set up a village around Clear Creek Abbey in Oklahoma and live there and like build a village. He changed that over time, um, but. I feel, you know, it's, it's like, I think that Kathy and I have talked about this a lot. You know, Mary Hassan wrote a book about it, Get Out of Public Schools Now, um, especially for, for kids, for young ones. I think they have to get out of the public schools. Um, now, with regard to colleges and universities, man, if they're, if they're firmly grounded in the faith, um, I think that they would have a chance there. But my wife, Kathy, puts it this way. Should we send our children to schools where they will spend four years in a defensive crouch, um, you know, rather than learning more about their faith, making contacts among other faith communities? I feel for those who are left behind. But you know, I converted at the University of Missouri. Began my conversion at the University of Missouri, and it and it began with with the offhand comment of, an, of, a, of, a, of a professor who denigrated uh, religion, I thought, oh, who are you, you snot-nosed you know, kid, to criticize the thing that has occupied the greatest minds of all time. That was the beginning of my conversion. So, you know, there is the Holy Spirit, you know, there is, there is focus, you know, focus is how many, on how many college campuses? Over a hundred. So I, I think that all, all of these initiatives um, on college campuses will have, will absolutely have an effect. But for a lot of people, they need to send their kids to the University of Dallas and Benedictine and Belmont Abbey. Um, yeah. I think maybe another piece of this is 
hoping for a new generation of Catholic philanthropists who can supply scholarships to the faithful Catholic colleges and maybe get some of these kids out of the system that they've been in for 18 years just by virtue of that. Yeah. You know, I, I, Kathy's on the board of Ave Maria Law School, and we're huge fans of Tom Monahan, always have been. But I kind of wish he hadn't given all this money away. You know, I, I kind of wish that he had kept making lots and lots of money to give to good organizations and Catholics and Catholic universities and, and colleges. So yeah, we, we do need a whole uh, new generation of Catholic philanthropists without doubt. Thank you. It looks as if we are about to wrap up. If my... I just want one more question. One more question. Do you have a question? <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Oh, no. <laughs> I have written, I, I think I've mentioned Mary in two of my, well, three of my four books. I'm an immense fan of Mary's. And I wrote a review of your um, How We Lost God. What was the title of that? How book? the West Really Lost God. And you said at the end of that, and this was a nit that I picked in my column in Crisis, that you had hoped for the day when sensible the sensible left would voluntarily give up uh, persecuting those that they disagree with. It's gotten worse since that time. Would you revisit your, your thought that they would eventually give it up on their own? Yeah, I think I understand better why they don't, and it goes back to something you said tonight. We are up against uh, a full-blown religion that it doesn't go by that name, but mm -hmm. uh, it has a theology that's grounded in the sexual revolution. Yeah. We see this religion on display whenever there is an, uh, a decision at the Supreme Court about abortion that goes the way of the pro-choice movement. These women dance in the streets. Yeah. Uh, they're intoxicated. Um, and there are other things about this religion that mimic Christianity as well. The equivalent of secular saints like yeah. Margaret Sanger, Margaret Mead. It doesn't matter how many times these people are exposed. And you've written beautifully about that, by the way. So I think, you know, for Catholics and other serious Christians, just understanding the nature of what we're up against is important. Yeah. Understanding that the loyalty people feel toward that religion is like the loyalty that traditional believers feel toward theirs, and that's why there's no compromise. Which is why they get so angry when you disagree. It's, it's like in the Middle Ages, you know, questioning transubstantiation or something. It, it, it really sets people on fire in a very emotional way. Um, I tried very hard to name this new established church, and I... Um, in, in writing about my book, he, he said it's a combination of... of uh, paganism, sexual polyversity, and scientism. If you can come up with a name out of those three things, but I think he absolutely nailed it in, 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 those, in those three aspects of, of this new established church. Um, yeah. And again, it's important to understand that what we're up against is not just seaweed. It's not stuff that's free floating out there. This is a creation, this is an institution. People are born theotropic. They wanna believe in something. They're either going to be on this side or that side. And that's one message that I hope people who are not as exposed to these arguments as we are will take home from their new book. You know, one of the remarkable pieces of information that I came across in researching the book came from our friend Chad Pecknold, who uh, pointed out that uh, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, in, in his book about democracy, uh, pointed out that Americans will eventually have to decide between paganism and Catholicism. How freaky is that? 
way back then he saw, and, and so much of these new faiths are paganism. Uh, they, they, they believe in energy. I write a lot about this in the book. They believe that there's energy all around us and that when we die, we return to energy. We come from energy, we go to energy. Uh, and that they think that God is in the trees and the flowers and things like that. It's, it's quite remarkable how passionate they are about this new faith. Well, thank you, Austin, and thank you, everyone, for on the Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much.